to our beautiful deep community, I want to assure you the deeper is going nowhere and the same incredible content will be released every week, but now through Arise. It is going to be less trauma heavy and more inspirational, uplifting, but it will still challenge and push you to grow. For all your deeper episodes, they are still available every fortnight. You can still get your deep hit with the deeper subscription. With him telling me all this stuff with the grooming, telling me he'll kill me if I'd sell anything, that he loves me, that I love him, that my parents hate me, that this is what they want. I started feeling feelings for this man. I wanted to see him. I would ride my bike really? to his house and wait for him. Really? He was all I wanted. He was all I wanted to be with, knowing too well what was going to happen to me. Welcome to the deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is the deep. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live and recognize their continuing connection to land water, and community. I pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Today we speak to Nathan, who, as an eight-year-old boy, was sexually assaulted by a grown man. This is his story of abuse, betrayal, growing up with this deep confusion This is a confronting story about child sexual abuse. Huge, huge trigger warnings if this is something that you cannot listen to or deal with. But Nathan is sharing this with courage, with truth, and with detail. So please, this isn't for little ears. Here's Nathan. Nathan Spateri... My fellow Maltese boy, welcome to the deep. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, yeah, very nice to be here. And, and I had no idea you were Maltese, so it's, it's nice to be able to speak to a another Maltese Australian. <laughs> we are Maltese Aussies, so we're probably related somehow. Somehow, some way back. You have the most incredible horrifically incredible story of survival and resilience all written in this beautiful book toy cars you okay to go there today with me absolutely you know i've I've been speaking about this a lot and i'm ready to go there with with people who are willing to go there with me that's that's what i'm looking for so i'm glad you you want to do that and i think that's a really good place to start because this conversation is going to be very descriptive um, in its abuse, child abuse in particular. And if you can't uh, handle that, which we completely respect, then you might want to switch this one off. But do you mind if we start there? Can we start with you as an eight-year-old boy? Can we start on that day where you were? Paint me the picture of the scenario, what was happening. Yeah. So... Eight years old, it was 1986. I, I grew up in Queanbeyan, which is just a small town outside of Canberra. So I pretty much grew up in Canberra. And, you know, we're talking about the mid 80s here when, you know, middle of summer when your parents would send you out and say, don't come home until it's nighttime or don't come home until it's dark or six o'clock for dinner. 
And, you know, during the summertime, literally the whole town would congregate at, at this pool, at this at the Queenie swimming pool. So I went down there with my sister. I rode my bike down there. You know, we'd done it plenty of times before. So it's just like another normal day, swimming with our friends, hanging out there all afternoon. My sister left early with some of her girlfriends. And I'm like, no, that's fine. I've ridden my bike home from the pool a thousand times before on my own. And it's, it's, it's fine. Not a problem at all. So I think the pool probably closed back then around 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. I don't even remember, but I think about 6 p.m. Literally everyone had left. I walked into the change rooms to have a shower, to get changed, to do what I was doing. I was followed in there by just some random dude who I would never suspect was who he was. Uh, followed me into the showers and I guess raped me. He, he, he raped me in the showers. First words he said to me were that if I tell anyone, he'll kill me and kill my family. So as an eight-year-old back then, mid-80s, you know, you kind of believe that. We didn't have access to mobile phones and, and hotlines and, 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 you know, charities and organizations that we do today. So literally straight from there, the grooming, the lies and manipulation started. Him telling me that I picked him up at the pool, that I was looking at him at the pool, that this is what my parents wanted that my brothers and my sister hate me, that that I love him, that he loves me, how special I was. Okay, I need to go way back because this in, the initial moment where a, a, a grown-up follows you into the shower, just that, just that initial moment, I can't imagine how confusing and terrifying that was. I was confused. I was scared. I tried to get out of the shower as he followed me in there, but he kind of cornered me into the into the corner of the shower, shoved me against the wall, which kind of, not knocked, it didn't knock me out, but dazed me and I was confused. And then from there just kind of turned me over and, 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 and raped me. I can't, I just, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Like I know I I know little 8-year-olds and their tiny bodies and I just it's just the most terrifying thing. I can just like it's very visceral for me. Like I can imagine, I can see it. I'm there with you. And that's the power of this book as well and I'm not going to reference the book too much because everyone can go in their own time and read it. We're going to talk about this like in, in real time together. But it's very, I just can't even imagine you, your tiny body being penetrated by that kind of force. Yeah. By Do you at that point dissociate or shut down you do, and, and I remember doing that. I left my body. I, I, he could have done what he wanted to do to me. He could have killed me, literally, because I had already left my body. I had disassociated. I had, I had died on the inside. So the eight-year-old boy who was me was gone, was never coming back. He was, he was done. And yeah, I disassociated. I, I saw myself leave my body. I saw myself from above looking down, so to speak. Oh, so I think this is so interesting for people that haven't been traumatized 
or haven't been sexually assaulted to understand, does that mean you can't feel it? At first you feel it, yeah. At first, absolutely. You f- the pain was, obviously I was eight years old, so I hadn't really felt pain, but the pain was like nothing I'd ever felt before. And still to this day, nothing I've ever felt in my life. But after the initial impact, the initial thrust, so to speak, and then a few after that, you don't feel it anymore. You're done. Yeah, you don't that feel is, it. Isn't that an amazing survival instinct of the body to be like, I'm out. Like, this is so fucked up. I am, you do not need to be present. Yeah. I am protecting your mind. Your brain is protecting you from this. Yeah. Do you come back to your body after that moment? I did come back to my body. I, it took me to realize, you know, once I was back in my body, it did take me a, a while to realize actually what had happened, where I was, who I was with and, and, and the actual sick, the whole situation. So he kind of left the shower, got changed as, as coolly and calmly as he, as he liked, came back into the shower, picked me up and said, he'll see me again soon. Holy fuck. So that's a little bit confronting. Yeah. Again, carrying on or again saying that if I tell anyone, he'll kill me and kill my family. How old is this person? At the time, again, because as an eight-year-old kid, he just looked like an old man. So he was probably 30s, 40s. Yeah, of course. He's a, he's a, he's a full-on grown-up. Okay. He's a full-on grown man. Yeah. We have this little boy the worst possible thing has happened. This perpetrator has said, I will kill you and your family. He said, I'm seeing you soon. But you also have the physical damage done to you. Yes. You have to somehow get up off the floor from the shower, make your way home. Yep. Do you remember all of this? I done a lot of therapy I've done a lot of EMDR a lot of kind of psychotherapy going back and, and reliving and 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 so I, I I remember a lot of it or as much as I can remember so I do remember getting back up off the floor again bloodied and bruised taking my time or you know it seemed like an eternity to get dressed to leave the change rooms I walked to my bike and I tried to get back on my bike and ride home but the pain was was too much so I pretty much just walked my bike home uh, which would have been probably about a half an hour walk. And I remember, I remember when I got home, mum told us, I, don't, I think it was after dinner, we, we had dinner, mum told us to have a shower for bed. I remember having a shower. I took my underpants into the shower to try and wash them clean because uh, they, were, they were stained and bloodied. But then what I did, I, I couldn't clean them, so I, I threw them away in the trash can. I threw them away in the bin. Um, so that my parents so you're protecting the evidence. Oh my! I'm love. protecting the evidence. I'm protecting my parents. I'm protecting myself. I, because as soon as it happened, as soon as I kind of realised where I was in the situation, I promised myself that I would never tell a soul for the rest of my life. So I did what I had to do to survive. I did what I had to do to take care of my family, and I did what I had to do to to yeah, to exist and pretend like nothing was going on. Wow. You're protecting your family from finding out, but you are holding this horrific, terrifying ordeal. I, 
it makes me murderous. It makes me feel violent. Yeah. It's amazing the, the amount of people I've told, men and women, and they've all said, who is he? I want to kill him. Like they are the sweetest, most softest people in the world. But just like you, it makes them murderous. It makes them just actually want to. And I'm not a violent person. I would never harm anyone. But to do that to yeah. a child, yeah. Yeah. To, yeah. to the, ah, tell me then how, because this story is a very long you know, how do we see him again? Has he had his eye on you? Has he chosen you? Was this a target? I think he was grooming me or I think he was watching me for a while. Um, he'd done his work, his research, whatever you want to say, because back then, and I think it still is the same today, what we would do as kids, we'd, we'd catch the bus from our house. And, you know, Queenman back then was a town of about 20,000 people. So it wasn't huge, but it's probably double that now. So we would catch the bus from our house and then the bus would drop us off down at downtown at the local interchange where all the school kids from, from the town would go and then catch their appropriate buses to just whatever school they were going to. So, and I actually spoke to my very best friend about this. And he actually said to me when I was writing my book and just in general, he said, I saw this man come up to you at the bus interchange in the afternoon put his arm around you and walk away with you. And, you know, we're talking eight, nine, 10 years old. He said, I just thought he was your, your uncle or a family member or your dad or a family friend just taking you home. Like no one was any wiser that this was a man who was going to take me and do these things with me. So he just walked up to the bus interchange, put his arm around me and walked off with me into his car and, and took me back to his house. The power. Yes. It's all about power. That's what this is. It's all power. The audacity. Yeah. You know, audacity, the fucking absolutely. audacity in public. Yeah. When did he come back after that initial time? So the initial time was, was summer holiday. So I think it was in January. Um, the next time it happened would have probably been back at school. Because my after family the break. has. Yeah, after the break. So it was probably an, a, a month or two later. Or I don't remember exactly, but it would have been a month, six weeks, however long later when school started. Because this is a stranger, right? This, this is, is there's stranger. no there's not even any context for you. This no. this this monster does this horrible thing, leaves you with it to carry it. Yep. Are you having nightmares? Are you I'm having nightmares. I'm you know, wake again, waking up in the middle of the night. I'm I'm shivering, I'm sweating, I'm you know, again the pain that's that I'm reliving the pain that what I went through. You're healing, and obviously, I'm too. Healing, obviously, yes, I am. But I am waiting for it because he said he will see me again soon. And I'm keeping this a secret. But, you know, when he first told me, he told me how special I was. And only special, this only happens to special boys. So I was already starting to think, well, was I special? Am I special? He told me how special I am. And he told me that my parents, don't wa my parents wanted this to happen, that he loves me, that my brothers and my sister don't like me. So there were so many things going on in my head. I was so confused, so lost. I'd already pushed my family away. So they were seeing behavioural differences immediately? I'm, I'm sure they were. You know, I was always a pretty quiet kid. And then, you know, I guess I was even more quiet after the, after the, the act. And I would just spend a lot of time at home playing with my toy cars or in my parents' bedroom watching TV and movies and, and stuff like that. So 
they just thought I was an introvert. They just thought I was a quiet kid who wanted to be on my own and didn't really want to hang out or, or play with friends. I think that's what they thought it was. So they didn't really question it. They didn't really think there was anything wrong. And I don't blame my parents for it. I don't blame, you know, my parents are old school Maltese. They're old school Europeans. They're wogs. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it's even unfathomable that this even would happen to a child, exactly. you know. That shit would never happen to a child and that shit would never happen in my family. So for them, yeah. that was the last thing they ever thought about. So, you know, and, and, and that's a thing because the next time I saw him, again, you know, he would take me near his house and he lived alone. He would, you know, shove me up against the wall. He would, you know, beat me about the head. And there was no, here's some chips or some cordial or a glass of water or, or some lollies or any of that stuff. It was just every single time I saw him. So how many times? It was, it, it varied. You know, sometimes it was once a week, twice, three times a week. Sometimes <gasps> it was once every couple of weeks. Sometimes it was once a month, but it went for about five years. <gasps> um, yeah, so it wasn't just a one-off thing. And, and that's where this relationship, if I can call it a relationship, turned into a Stockholm Syndrome type relationship. Well, and for those who don't know what Stockholm Syndrome is, it's when you feel love for your abuser. It's when you feel love for your captive. Or protective or of protect, them or wanting yeah, to or keep them, them safe. Keep them safe. So with him telling me all this stuff, with the grooming, telling me he'll kill me if I'd sell anything, that he loves me, that I love him, that my parents hate me, that this is what they want, I started feeling feelings for this man. I wanted to see him. I would ride my bike really? to his house and wait for him. Really? He was all I wanted. He was all I wanted to be with knowing too well what was going to happen to me. When did it turn from fear to what you call love or affection? You know, we're talking over kind of like a five-year period. So it was probably at least a good year or two into it when I started to feel feelings of, of I want to be with this man. I'm no psychiatrist, right? But my ins gut instinct or my intuition is saying, if you knew this wasn't going to end... It's that whole thing of like, if I can't beat him, join him. For me, I thought it wasn't going to end. For me, I thought, all right, well, this is it. I'm special. I'm a special little boy and this is, this is it. And I was chosen and, and this is what's meant to happen and I'm supposed to be with this guy. So let's, let's do this. Let's, I'm in. I was feeling depressed through the shame, through the, you know, the hatred of myself now, the self-sabotage, mm. that he was the only one who made me feel special. He was the only one who made me feel wanted. Even though my parents did, my family did, my friends did, I didn't want to know about it. I pushed them away. But that's the process of the perpetrator. That is, exactly. you know, they isolate. This is a conniving, manipulative psychopath. So that is skill. That is not you. That is him. Exactly. This and, insidious, you know, insidious little, you know, fucking roots into every element of your life. Exactly. And, you know, they always say when they do it to one kid, they do it to many kids. So I'm sure he'd done it to kids before me. So he, he knew what he was doing. How much did you know about him? You know, being at his place, learning about him. Was he married? Was he single? What did you know? I later found out he was married. There was, he didn't have much furniture. Or he had obviously had furniture. He didn't have many photos or anything in his, in his house. But he, there was always a photo that I would look at, and it, it, it's as fucked up as it sounds. When he was doing the things to me, 
I would just stare at this photo of him with this little girl. And I would always think about her and think if he was doing this to her, if she was a special little girl. And I guess just to fast forward, when he kind of abandoned me, and I say abandoned me because he just disappeared out of my life. I, I wanted to be with this man. He abandoned me and I would go to his house or wait outside his house or, or go looking for him. And I, I didn't see him for about six months or so. I then rocked up to his house one day and saw that there was someone inside. There was a car in the driveway. There was someone inside. So I thought he was back. I knocked on the door. This lady answered. And I later found out that it was his wife or his ex-wife and, and his daughter was the girl in the photo. And she had an idea as soon as she saw me because she asked me, how do you know my husband? Why are you here to see my husband? And then she said, you will never, ever see him again. And, and as she said that, I didn't say anything to her, but as she was saying that, that her, her daughter came running to the door. So I saw her daughter and all I did was kind of stare at her daughter because I was, this is this little fucking girl who, who kept me alive through that whole time, through those five years. This is the little girl that I would just look at and I was mesmerized by her. I was in love with this girl and I was like, holy fuck, this She's is it. Here. This is you. This is yes. And then... The mother said, you know, how do you know my husband? You were never going to see him again. That kind of put me back into where I was, brought me back into my body once again. And I just ran away, jumped on my bike, and, and I was gone, and I, I never saw them again. How old was that girl? I think she was probably a year or two younger than me. So the mother talking to you looked disturbed. She wasn't like, oh, this is a little boy that's friends with my husband's. No. She probably knew of what maybe he'd done something before or there were some signs that he'd done this before or something like that. And she left him. She divorced him or, or I don't know if they were divorced or whatever it was, but she'd left yeah. him. She had an inkling of something. She had an inkling because when you have this little fucking 12-year-old kid rocking up to your house, you're like, what the fuck are you doing here? Why are you here to see my husband? So this was at the home that the abuse took place at. Yes. But she was never there. She was never there, but I think obviously when he disappeared, when he abandoned me, when he was wherever the fuck he was, she was there because not long after that, the house was put up for sale. So I think she was cleaning it out, getting possessions, doing what she was doing. I don't know, but then the house was put up for sale. And you never saw him again. I never saw him again. Done. Never. Done. I'm feeling you would, there'd be a sense of betrayal absolutely betrayal anger hatred towards this man towards myself i blame myself what did i do wrong what did i do to hurt him why does he not want to see me anymore so it was just all on me i would blame myself it wasn't this man as much as i did blame him it was more me and so for the next couple of years so i think i think it was about from about 13 through to 15 i was like so confused i was like who am i where do I belong? Who do I belong with? Am I gay? Am I straight? I love this man. I fucking hate this man. I hate me. I don't deserve to be happy. I would steal my dad's cigarettes and his 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 little bottles of VB and 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 whatever he was drinking back then and drink and smoke his cigarettes to to numb the pain, to escape the the hurt, to to just kind of forget about things. But I was so confused, so lost, so alone because all I wanted was this guy, but he was nowhere to be found. He was nowhere around. And, and this lady told me that I was never going to see him again. And I always thought I would, but 
and I always would I would always question it. Am I going to see him again? Where is he? Where you know where did he go? Why did he Why did he leave me? What did I do wrong? Did he find another little boy? Did he find a special other little boy who he's now with? Or or yeah. When you're with him in these times over the five years, is it purely for his depravity and his needs, or do, do you hang out and watch movies? Is he trying to be your friend? Is he talking to you? That's 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 a good question. So in the first, you know, the first year or two, there'd be never any questions. There'd be never any, "Hi Nathan, how are you? How's school? How are your friends?" Blah blah blah. Can I get you a drink? Do you want some food? Some lollies? Packet of chips? Whatever? Cordial? Water? There was never any of that. But as the relationship developed, and it's, it sounds very fucked up for me to say as the relationship developed, but as it as it did develop, mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. I felt feelings for this man, he would sit with me. He would talk. Um, and ask me questions about school, about my friends at school. Um, he would offer me chips or, or, you know, water or cordial. Slowly he built that relationship. Did you find out anything about him? I asked him about the girl in the photo and he shut it down straight away, told me it was none of my business. I didn't even know his name. He never told me, hi, my name's Mark or my name's Peter or my name's fucking Bob. Not he even a lying that. name, not even an alias. No. So I would, I would just never, I would, I would never really ask him. Do you know his name now? I do know of his name now. Um, and it's funny because the way I found out about him was through my mother and her friends. What? <laughs> let me, let me explain. Let me explain. So I, in, in 2018, and I'm fast forwarding, obviously. So in 2018, I had a big article come out about me in the Canberra Times and the Sydney Morning Herald, and it was kind of, um, a full page spread in the middle of the Sunday Times. And and it was the first time it, I'd really come out about it. Um, a friend of mine worked as an editor at the Canberra Times and we kind of grew up together. And this was the time the Prime Minister was doing his big public apology in Australia to everyone who had been abused through the Catholic Church, through the Boy Scouts, through whatever. And, and my friend knew of my story and she said, Nathan, can I do a story about you in the, in, in the paper? Because it would be so fitting and it would be perfect timing for what's going on with the government and, and the prime minister. And I, my, my parents had already known about what happened to me. So I spoke to my parents about it and mum asked if it could be an anonymous article, you know, not have my name, not have my photo. But Bree, who was my friend at the, at, at, at the paper, said, Nathan, we need to put your name, we need to put your photo because it adds so much more weight to the story. If there's no name or photo, it's just a made-up made up article. But with your name, with your photo, you know, you're this, you know, this guy who is now living in New York and following his dreams and, you know, so you've survived and you're thriving and you're doing this and doing that. It adds so much more weight to the story. So the story came out and fast forward a little more, Mum's friends had gotten in contact with her because they read the story and they're like, holy fuck, this is, you know, they all grew up in Queanbeyan. Mm-hmm. And they started asking questions amongst themselves. And then they, you know, they kind of cornered me and asked, asked me questions about it. We all kind of put two and two together. And they kind of said, that's, it's this guy. There was always talk of this guy being a bit of a, a weirdo or, you know, something wrong with him. And, and there was always talk of him, you know, playing with kids and that's kind of how we put two and two together then are you fascinated are you looking into it i'm looking into it and i found out he died of of early onset alzheimer's dementia 
um, which, which, you know, it's great that he's dead. I'm glad he's dead. I, I, you know, people say it's great. You can move on. You can get closure, but as much closure I, as I can get, I can't because he wasn't punished. He wasn't punished. And I wanted to ask him questions. I, I, I wanted to sit with him and say, why me? Did it happen to you? Was I looking at you at the pool? You know, I had a million No, you weren't fucking him. looking. You weren't looking. But then what I would do <sighs> is I would take a baseball bat and I'd kill him in a heartbeat. And I fucking say that proudly and I have no hesitation in saying that. Not because of what he's done to me, because of what he's done to me, I've come to peace with, I understand, just so he can't do it to another kid, so he can't hurt someone else. Did you find out what he did for a job? What he, like, he was the town weirdo, but... Did your mum know of him? My mum knew of him. And I, I, it's, it's funny, I actually didn't ask what kind of job he did. I, I didn't ask um, because we spoke about it and they told me about him and, and you know, they told me that, that he had the wife and the daughter and that they disappeared. Had he uh, done it before? I think so, yes. Yep, yep, yep. Did he do it after? After, I do not know. I was hoping through this article some other people would come forward. Yeah. Or even his daughter or his wife would come forward, but they, you know, I totally understand. Have you searched online? Have you tried to find the daughter? I, and- I did, but I, I, I couldn't. So I'm not even sure if she is online because of the situation. Uh, and, or aliases or change or names. aliases or change names, absolutely. And for me, for reasons where, you know, I don't want to get sued or I don't want to get in trouble or I don't want them to come after me or, or something like that. Mm-mm. I've kind of I've kind of let it go as well. Because I don't blame them. It's not their fault. I don't want to rub their, their name in, in the mud. I don't want to have have to have to have them relive it. I've, you know, I've this is all on it's 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 about me. It's not even about this man. I don't want to glorify this man. It's about me and my journey and where I was to where I am today. And that's why I, I, I talk about it. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm so open and honest and public about it because it's for me now, it's about being a voice for the voiceless because there are so many thousands oh. and thousands of men and women in the world who will never have a chance to, to speak their truth, to come forward, to find peace, to get closure. Do you know if he ever took photographic material or did anything that he could show people? That's a really good question. I do not know. I do not know. Um, only because we've had, we've had a pedophile hunter on here and obviously sex trafficking is a whole new thing and child yeah. sex trafficking. But I just wondered if he was in this by himself or... There has been a history of... of pedophilia or or abuse at that pool oh when this article came out so many people in town in queenie and canberra came forward and said the same thing has happened to me or mm. i was abused at the pool so it's it's a lot more common than what we think it's a lot more common take me back now to you're now mid to late teens. You're confused. Yep. I'm 15. I'm confused. I'm lost. I don't know who I am. Am I gay? Am I straight? Am I this? Am I that? I was angry. I hated myself. I hated the world. I hated everyone. And in doing that, I discovered alcohol. Obviously, I discovered drugs. I was lots of ecstasy, lots of you know cocaine and pills and everything I could, smoking crack. I... I whatever I could just to 
get away from it, to survive, to escape it, to just kind of feel alive, to numb the pain. And also the while trying to have a relationship with a girl. You're trying to have a relationship with women. Yes, because, and I've been told this in therapy and I've spoken about this in therapy. I went to a sex therapist. I did Sex Anonymous, you know. I've been asked, am I gay? Am I bi? Am I this? Am I that? So all the sex I had with men, everything I did with men, I would never touch them. Um, oh, no caressing. There yes. was no, there was no holding, touching, kissing. It was it's playing out abuse. Act. It was just playing out abuse. You had to be abused. It wasn't consensual. It was consensual because I said, yes, let's do this. I agreed to it. But in your mind, you're playing out an abusive act. Absolutely. So you're dictating it or, or, or navigating it to play out the history of violence. Yes, yes, because that's what I wanted. That was all I knew. But every time I was with a girl or a girlfriend or I'd, I'd want to hold her hands, I'd want to mm. caress her, I'd want to kiss her, I wanted to touch her, I wanted to, I wanted to love her. So here we are as a straight man yeah, being in straight relationships but needing to be abused by men. Exactly, exactly. Take me now to this place. We've lived this cycle of abuse now for 15, 20 years. You've tried to have relationships with women. You've, we've gone to the 2018 where the story is out there. Tell me, though, the day where you go, holy fuck, my parents are going to see this, hear about this, I'm going to tell them. <laughs> so I moved to New York in 2007. So I would have been about 31, 32. My best friend at the time was a girl who I went to acting school with, Canadian girl living in, in, in New York. We were inseparable. We were, you know, we would do everything together. But she was done with me as well. She's like, Nathan, I can't be your friend. I can't do this with you anymore. You are just going to kill yourself. You, you're the drugs, the parties, everything else. So she said, we are done. And it kind of hit me. So I, I rang her a couple of days later and said, listen, can you please meet me? I need to meet with you one more time. So she agreed to meet with me. And I remember it was like it was yesterday. We met at a cafe in the West Village. It was February. It was freezing cold. She was there already sitting in the middle table. The place was full. So the place was just, you know, loud and full of people. I sat there with her and... She said, all right, what do you want? Because I am done. I can't be your friend. I'm, I'm moving back to Canada soon. I, you know, I, I, I'm out. She got up mm. to stand uh, to walk away. And for the first time ever, I just blurted it out. I was raped as a kid and I've never, ever told anyone. Oh, so she amazing. sat back down. We kind of spoke about it. I told her about the abuse. I told her about the drug use. But through her help and me telling her, she helped me find my first therapist. So with my first therapist, I did therapy. I did group therapy. She helped me get into rehab, into AA, Narcotics, Sex Anonymous. So I was probably about a year into therapy uh, and group therapy, which saved my life when my parents were coming to America to visit me. They were coming to New York to visit. So me and my therapist, we kind of came up with a plan of the best way to tell my family, best way to tell my parents because I still hadn't told them. And they came with my little brother, but my little brother knew some friends here, so he was out with them. I went to dinner with mum and dad. We sat outside because it was summertime when they came, and it was quiet. It was just the three of us, 
And I said to him, I, there's something I need to tell you. And, you know, mum being mum and probably being a good European Maltese mother, the first thing she said to me was, what, you got a girl pregnant? And I'm like, mm. no, you're in trouble with the police. No, you owe someone money. No, you're, you're you know, just all these things. And I'm like, please, just sh- shut the fuck up. I need to talk to you. Mm. And I said to him, I was abused as a kid. And, you know, there was silence for a few seconds. And then she said, no, you weren't. We never abused you. What, you know, what are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. And I said, no, it wasn't you guys. And I just said, I was raped at the Queen Bean Pool when I was eight years old. And then that kind of just shut them up for a while. And then, you know, mum being mum, she wanted to know the who, the what, the when, the where, you know, all the details. So I, you know, I told them as much as I could. And it was the first time ever, the first time in my life. And it's so fucking weird. And I, I still, still hits me today. My mum growing up was a disciplinarian. My mum was the one who used to, you know, back then she'd hit us and give us a belt and, you know, all of that stuff mm. because that's how it was back then. So mum was, mum was the one who would discipline us kids. I have an older sister and two younger brothers. And my dad was the softest, most sweetest man in the world. He wouldn't hurt a fly. But it was the first time ever I saw the roles reversed. My mum just wanted to be my mum. My mum stood up mm. and crying and wanted to give me the biggest hug in the world and tell me that it's going to be okay and that she loved me. Oh. And she'd never done that before. Or she, she did, obviously, but not to that extent. But, and I, I couldn't handle it. I didn't know how to, how to handle it. So it was so foreign to me that when she hugged me, I just wanted to get out of it. I, I, I didn't want to feel it. And for the first time ever, my dad became this monster. My dad was like, who is this man? I want to fucking kill him. And I've never heard my dad speak like that. My dad has probably never had a fight in his life. But my dad became so protective and so fatherly and I want to kill him. Who is he? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, listen, it's not about him. It's just about me and and where I'm at. And I just want you to understand who I am. And the first thing my mother said and the first thing my sister said when I told her as well was, wow, that explains everything about you. Now we know why you were the kid you were. Now we know why you were the teenager and why you did the things you did. And it was like, whoa, it kind of just hit me that that was their response like, wow, now we get it. Now we understand why you were the kid you were why you were so quiet, why you were an introvert, why you wanted to not be with anyone, why you wanted no affection from us. Um, We spoke about it for that night. And then I I, I think again, maybe because of that shit doesn't happen in my family, you know, that, that doesn't happen. We didn't talk about it for about three months or six months because I think they needed to process it. Mm. They needed to understand it. They needed to, work through what they were going through and i never blamed them once and i still do not blame them it was never their fault you know maybe they could have saw a change in me a little bit more and asked questions but that's how it was back then that was that was the times you know we're talking again mid 80s early early 90s when we we weren't educated on this as much as we are today so you know i have the most amazing beautiful loving parents in the world and family in the world so i do not blame them at all have you ever spoken to them about how they felt? Yeah, we have. Not too much, though. Like, Dad doesn't really want to speak about it. Mum's been a lot more communicative about it. 
And mum has said, you know, I, we should have seen something. We should have done something. We should have said something when we saw you like this. So they get it, but they don't get it. They understand. Mm. And I remember, because I still suffer my depression. I still have my good and bad days. And I remember probably about two, three months ago, my parents rang me and I was in, a, in, a, in, you know, not in a great place. And as soon as I picked up, I just started crying. And I've never, ever done this with my parents. I, I just started crying because I was just done. And for the first time ever, I said to my parents, literally for the first time I've ever, I've ever fucking said it, I think. I said to my parents, what happened to me as a kid really fucked me up. And I never, ever said those words through all my rehab or through all my therapy, through AA, through all of, you know, all of the work I've done on myself. But for the first time, I really acknowledged it and said to my parents, what, what happened to me as a kid really fucked me up. Um, and don't get me wrong. I'm in a great place now. I, I, you know, in all the, the therapy I've done, I understand who I am. I understand my relationship with this man. I understand my relationship with men and with women. I understand my relationship with my parents, my family, my brothers and my sister. I understand who I am. And I truly believe that what I went through happened for a reason. And the reason why it happened to me is to now educate the world, is to share my story, is to save lives. You know, in New York here, I, you know, my, the, the guys I work with, my manager and agent, they've literally said to me, Nathan, you are the poster boy for this now because you are literally the only male in the world, if I can say that, or one of the only men in the world who is doing this, who is so open and out there and public. And, you know, when you read my book, my memoir, it is very fucking raw and real. I don't leave anything out because if you're going to tell a story like this, you need to include the details because if I wrote a book saying I was raped at eight years old, but let's fast forward to me now being 44 and where I'm at now, you're not going to learn anything. You're not going to understand what one goes through the consequences. So I've done the work and I understand it now. And, and for me, it's about giving back. I've done a lot of bad things. I've hurt a lot of people. So for me, and I've had a lot of hurt put onto me. But for me now, it's about giving back. It's about sharing my story. It's about educating the world. It's about doing these these podcasts with you. It's doing the the the, the TED talks. It's about doing the the keynote speakings. The you know all of these things to educate people and say, listen, this is an epidemic. One in six men are sexually abused globally, and they're the men who come forward. So imagine oh the fact thousands of men who don't come forward because of shame, because of toxic masculinity, because of power and money, because of their job, because of whatever it is, social, economic, you know, race, religion, mm. color, whatever it is, it'd probably be about one, one in three or one in four. Oh my God. So there are thousands and thousands of men and women who will never have the opportunity to come forward. So if I can be a voice for the voiceless, if I can speak on their behalf, if I can help them find some kind of peace and closure and move forward with their lives, that I'm doing the right thing. And don't get me wrong, this is fucking hard. What I'm doing is tough because unlike people like you, and I, I, I praise you for this and I, I really am indebted to you for this because 95% of the media will, will say to me, if you're a woman, we would talk to you today. Because you're a man, we are not going to talk to you. 
It's just rejection after rejection after rejection. Why is that? Because male sexual abuse doesn't exist. We sweep it under the carpet. We don't want to know about it. And yes, because it is tough and it is hard, but people don't want to know about it because it's going to disrupt their day. It's going to make them have to think about this. It's going to make them, and I think that's a problem with society today, people don't want to do the work on themselves because of what they're going to discover. You know, people have the perfect job, the perfect girlfriend, the perfect car, the perfect wife, you know, house, whatever it is. But if they actually go deep and do the work on themselves, they're going to discover just how unhappy they really are. There's no word for it. You you are saving lives and you are a hero. And I feel so grateful that you shared that with us today. Absolutely. And, and I thank you. Thank you for allowing me to share it because a lot of people don't. So, And you know what? Fucking shame on them. Shame on them because silencing someone like you is allowing abusers to abuse and is allowing damage to children. So shame on them. Yeah. I want to ask you, I don't know if you've heard our podcast before, but our final question is, who are you when no one's watching? <laughs> That's a... <laughs> I, who am I when no one's watching? I'm, I'm me. I'm Nathan Spiteri. I'm just very, I'm real. I'm authentic. I don't care for the bullshit. What you see is what you get. And I'm a survivor and I'm going to continue to be a survivor and I'm going, I'm going to continue to be a voice. And this is who I am. If you don't like it, go fuck yourself <laughs> because, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I, I don't mean it that way, but I do because this is who I am. I've lived it and I don't, I, I just don't care for the nonsense anymore. I don't care for the background noise. I don't care for the, for the bullshit. You know, we, we've all got one life to live and I just want to live it as authentic and as, as real as I can, whether I make $20 million a year, whether I make $20,000 a year, all I want in my life is peace, is joy and is love because I've never really felt any of them. So that's, that's who I am when no one is watching. I'm just myself. I like to be by myself, obviously, because of my past. And I'm very comfortable in my own skin with who I am, with my way of thinking, because you know, as, as I said to you, I know who I am. I know what kind of a man I am. I know what I want. I know what's important to me and I'm going to achieve it and I'm going to get it with or without your help, with or without, and I'm not saying you, I'm saying in general, yeah, this is me. God, I'm just as real as I, as I am. And, you know, I, I always say the last line in my book is freedom is of the mind, not of the body. Speaking and living my truth is a powerful thing. And my truth is my power and my ultimate freedom. So my truth is my ultimate freedom because I know who I am. I know what I'm about and I know what's important to me and what, what life is, what life really is about. Amen. Amen. Nathan, we're going to leave all of your links in the show notes. Those people are going to want to buy your book. So we'll, we'll leave it all there. It is heavy. It is not for the faint-hearted, but it is crucial reading. I encourage everyone to get their hands on it. It's beautifully written. You're a beautiful storyteller. And thank you for being on The Deep today. Thank you very much. And I, I can't wait for the next time as well. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. 
If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's the Deep. Hi, everybody. It is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting. It's quirky. It's curious. It's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you will hear some of these episodes and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.